What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Tyson Popplestone here from RelaxRunning.com. You're listening to the Relax Running Podcast. Today on the show, I have running physiotherapist Dean Huffer. Dean is a, a well-renowned physiotherapist here in Melbourne, rubbing shoulders with a number of the best sports doctors and exercise physiologists that the country has to offer. I'm a big fan of Dean. I've, I, I followed his progress as a younger athlete. We were at the same school out at Gippsland Grammar back in about 2003 before Dean graduated. And I was always a big fan of him as an athlete who's an incredibly talented athlete and injury tampered his performance or his ability to express his talent in a way that uh, I think he would have been able to run. He was an incredibly talented middle distance man, one of the smoothest blokes you would have seen run around in a 1500. So I think part of his fascination and passion about physiotherapy was born from his own frustration with injury. His brother Craig, who was a 336, yeah, 1500 meter runner, also had some trouble with injury. So I think when injury starts to tamper your performance in the way that it's uh, touched on Dean's life, it's no surprise here that he's become so passionate in helping alleviate the frustration that he endured in other athletes. So Dean is a man. He's a he's a man of many talents. Let me let me just read you some of his areas of expertise. So he looks at running injury rates, some of the most common running in injuries, the risk factors and the danger signs that they're coming on, the importance of load management, strength training for distance runners, plant, uh, plantar heel pain research, and altitude physiology. So we go into a whole heap of detail on improving our ability as distance runners. And obviously, if you've been around the sport for a while, you know that the consistency is the foundation to progress. And the way that you get consistent is you avoid injury or you manage injury more effectively. So that's exactly why I wanted to catch up with Dean today and pick his brain on all of these things. While I was there, I actually also sat down for 35 minutes and recorded a video practical a practical video is what I should be trying to say with John Charles, who's a podiatrist there. We look at the essential elements of foot care and foot health for runners. So if you're a runner who is having any trouble with foot injury or blisters or picking the right shoes, or you just got a million questions about how to take care of your feet as a runner, jump on the Relax Running membership at relaxrunning.com slash join, and you'll get access to that video. It's in the experts corner now. There's a, a big library of videos coming together. I try and do at least one video a month with a physio or a podiatrist or a sports doctor or a masseuse to be able to give you guys some practical tools to implement into your training program each week. You'll also get access to the bonus podcasts. Just did a bonus podcast with 351 Mile Craig Engels last week as well, which is a great chat. And uh, he joins the library, the growing library of interviews, which are now available to our a good community of relaxed running members. So if you want to get on board there, jump over to relaxrunning.com slash join. Spin the wheel to get your discount. It'll give you a code, which will give you 24 hours to enter that coupon code, get a discount on the relaxed running membership. If you're lucky, it's a it's a little bit of a gamble. It's a bit of a get. You might leave with nothing. You might live with 50% discount. But uh, hey, try your luck. Relaxrunning.com slash join. Anyway, that's enough from me. I'm going to get out of your way and introduce to you running physiotherapist, Dean Huffer. Beautiful. Man, thanks for thanks for making the time to, to come and jump on. It's, it's probably... 16 years, I reckon, since we actually sat down and had a 
proper conversation. I always seem to see you from time to time, but it sort of blows my mind that it was 16, 17 years ago that we that we sort of left the same school together. Yeah, 17 years now, long time. Yeah, far out. That's gone crazy. And uh, it's it's funny how quickly things can change because now in my mind, I, I when I think of the name Dean Huffer, I always think of this clinic and I think of the other doctors that you're rubbing shoulders with and um you're going to be a popular man on this podcast because you're the you're the bloke who put me on to john quinn who's a who's a much loved uh, guest on the show now and uh, there's a there's a lot of people who are saying that if he's anything like john quinn or comes from the same clinic as him like <laughs> look tell me about him so um i thought just as a bit of a start point for for my sake and for the listeners sake you could give me a just a little bit of a rundown on um on what it is that you do here some of your specialties and um, sort of the kind of athletes that you're dealing with? Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm a physio um, with a strong interest in running injuries. Uh, had a background when I went to high school, I was running when Tyson was running. Uh, had a few injuries that I feel sort of hampered my own progress as a runner. And I, I, after seeing numerous physios and sports physicians, it wasn't something that I sort of really set out to do when I was in high school. I think when Tyson probably saw me last, I was trying to do graphic design work. Uh, but after a while, I sort of become frustrated with my own progress with injuries and I wanted to learn more about them. And also my brother was going quite well in his athletics and he was getting hampered with injuries as well. Uh, and they were setting him back in his progress and I thought, yeah, maybe physio is something that I could do. And I went down that path. I ended up going studying exercise science in the US uh, for a couple of years uh, at Adam State University, ran collegiately there, learned a lot about the sport, um, new perspectives on training. And then when I come back, took up my physio studies and that led me down the path of working here. But the main, uh, I suppose, motivation to get into physio was to treat runners, particularly middle distance runners, junior developing athletes, uh, and try and set them on the right path. Yeah. My, the first the first injury, just to, to rewind the clock and get sentimental for a minute, I remember it was... So I moved to Melbourne from Western Australia. When I first got there, you were you were flying along, just smoking me up in all the races. Seemed to be a bit of a trend when we both were competing. But uh, one thing that I, I do remember was around year ten or eleven, you you copped a was it a stress fracture, an injury of some sort that had yeah, you out of action so for a while. Yeah, so that was probably the, one of the things that started me on the physio track, and it was misdiagnosed for a long time. I had an avulsion fracture, ischial tuberosity, uh, so pulled the bone away there, and. Even now, I still run with a little bit of a hitch in my hip from that injury because it, it just lasted probably, I'd be good three or four months um, before it was fully diagnosed. I think I ran my first, one, my first national title as a junior. I'm in a lot of pain with that. And I remember that whole year I was sitting down, it was pretty sore uh, until I actually got diagnosed by a sports physician in Melbourne. Uh, yeah, but that was, yeah, that was after a numerous misdiagnoses. That was, yeah, so quite big on my physio treatment is getting a diagnosis straight away so if we haven't got a de- um, definite diagnosis it's not just see how it's going to go i want to get a diagnosis first and that probably comes back to my own uh experiences yeah just the frustration that comes with having no idea what's going on mm-hmm. yeah so it's a it's a i can imagine a difficult scene to be involved in when it comes to trying to find a diagnosis for runners because it, it almost seems like a talent in itself to remain uninjured as a as an athlete and with the so many, uh, I guess, so many injuries, which you've uh, got the capacity to get as a runner and, and the different abilities for people to express what it is that they're dealing with. It could be a, a sort of a frustrating scene to be a part of. But, but what I'm interested in from a physio's perspective, and the reason I'm, I'm so keen to chat to people like you and John Quinn is because I think uh, even for myself, who, who took running very seriously, was really keen to improve, 
I think years ago I didn't really take the, the, the prevention, the cure method too seriously. It was just like, all right, I'll just run for as much as I can and see how I cope. And looking back, it just seems ridiculous. So um, I know there's a lot of new athletes who are listening to the podcast that uh, I'm really trying to encourage to, to hear the wisdom of, of people like yourself that might be able to prevent some of the issues that they're facing with. But but what are the sort of are there certain areas of specialty that you, you do focus on more than others? Is there any particular injuries that you're most confident in actually diagnosing? Well, in running, most of the injuries are going to be, you look at the five most common running injuries and their lower limb injuries. So even as a background, I had a bit of a presentation here that I usually present to runners on running injuries. And if we go through this, I'll just click on the next one. Okay, and, and you'll see that the five most common ones are lower limbs, particularly around the knee, patellofemoral pain, very common, iliotibial pain on the side, that ITB friction syndrome, plantar fasciopathy, or you might hear plantar heel pain, plantar fasciitis, meniscal injuries of the knee, medial tibial stress syndrome. So there's sort of the five main ones that I will see coming into the clinic. Also see a lot of Achilles tendinopathy, uh, the, the danger one always, for dist- for, particularly when you get to the higher level, leaner distance runners, we see a lot more of those stress fractures. So those first two, three, I would say more just your general hobby joggers, those with telephemoral knee pain, see more of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when they're the elite runners, you'll see more of that plantar fasciitis, uh, stress fractures and Achilles tendinopathy. Uh, stress fractures and bone stress is something that I always yeah, sort of run in. Um, have to be aware with with the, with the elite runners uh, and I've had several over my career and yeah, most elite runners you'll find will be they'll be at least able to have a name have one or two stresses over their career and I know at the moment it's all strength 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 and injury things which strength's important biomechanics there's all the nutritional things there's a lot of different factors but it all comes down to load management mm-hmm. for instance if we don't do anything we're probably not going to get injured. Uh, and if we've been running 20Ks a week for 20 years, it's not really an effort for us. It's pretty comfortable. But when we up that load, that's the biggest risk of injury. Now, I know physio, sports medicine, and even the shoes, we're saying they're developing all the time. But unfortunately, if we look at the data, injury rates last 40 years exactly the same. So it's still a bit of a problem area. Mm-hmm. And if you'd say, oh, there's one magic answer, no. But the thing with injuries is these running ones, they're not sort of so much acute, they're not sudden ones, it's not as if... The common injuries, you don't usually see distance runners come in and they're twisted in their knees and they've done an ACL. No, yeah. that's in a footy game. But they're overuse injuries. So people say, oh, yeah, it's just an overuse one, I've been doing too much mileage. No, you mightn't have been doing too much mileage. You might be capable of it, but you just build up to it too fast. So... They're more training load area injuries. We there's a, there was an article I think published in uh, I think it was British Sports Journal of Sports Medicine a few years, and they said, "Oh, maybe we should be changing the term instead of overuse to training load error injuries." So quite often they can be traced back to an increase of load. So after you've had some time off, you're at risk coming back. Also, say for instance, you've gone from the cross country season. And then you come into track, you start doing more work on the track. You might be doing any more mileage, but you might not even be doing any more speed work. But just going into spikes is increased load on the body. So there's, uh, I think, number one risk of injury is uh, load management. Yeah. Then you can get, so as you know, where there's lots of runners running around, 
don't have many injuries, look at them. Get them in the clinic here, their strength's terrible. <laughs> look at them run, their biomechanics are terrible, but their body's toughened up to it, they can get, they're getting viable. Uh, so on the other side of things, there's some athletes that come in, do all the strength work perfect and that, uh, but a little ramp up the mileage too quickly and they're getting injured. So there is still a lot of uncharted territory and things that we've got to uh, do. And the reality is, I think if we go back to the stats, I think you said on that previous slide, at any time, almost a quarter, quarter of runners will have an injury. Yeah. And then at least 50% of runners, particularly competitive ones, will have an injury at some time of the year that puts them out for a week or so. So it is in, inevitable. You say, oh, you look at these runners like Willis and Bernard Legat, and you think, oh, they've had these awesome long careers. They still have injuries, but they've just been able to bounce back and quite quickly get a good diagnosis. They've had good medical terms around, teams around them and bounce back. So I think it's going to be, if you're on that red line pushing to the limits, mm -hmm. you are going to have an injury, but it's about being able to get back quickly. Well, not when I say quickly, in a controlled manner, getting a quick identification. What we don't want to have is, for instance, you're having an injury and it's going on, for instance, you, you're waiting four or five weeks to get a diagnosis, you start back too fast, you set back another week, you set back another week. Or rather, if someone's got an injury, they come in, we get a diagnosis straight away. Yes, you might have to serve your one or two weeks off, uh, but then we're gradually building you up rather than fiddling around. We don't want to be going up and down. I think if you look at some of the physiology start data, a week off, yes, you mightn't feel as sharp on the track, but overall fitness, you might lose 1%. Two weeks off, yes you're looking around that 10%, but after two weeks, you do lose a lot of significant fitness. Yeah. So with the distance runners, yeah, there's a fine line. It's, it's um, managing the load. Uh, also, we've got to manage the mind because a lot of the runners are the biggest enemy when they get injured is they want to do more as well. So getting them to back off. So that's where things like cross-training and that are valuable. Yeah. So when it comes to managing the load, you mentioned that an athlete who might have been running 20Ks a week for 20 years is going to have no dramas running that quite comfortably. Um, but obviously trying to distinguish what the best load for a certain athlete to do is, is quite a difficult process depending on, I guess, how long they've been running, what their history is. Are there, are there any certain guidelines that, that you offer for people who are hoping to increase their load or increase their training that might just help them um, be a little bit cautious about dodging some of these common overuse injuries? Well, I wouldn't think it, but load's not such a bad thing. Load's also our friend. So the more load we give, uh, higher risks, higher returns. So the reality is we're not going to be a world-class runner unless we're probably running, particularly in distance, close to 100 miles, 150, 60 k's. Mm. Uh, I know there's a bit of people, you always hear someone say, oh, this person's doing world-class performance only around 70 k's a week. Over 1,500k, I probably doubt it. Yeah. So you have to get up to that somehow. Uh, even you can do your LDG, you can do your thing. It's not, an, it's, it's not never fully supplement getting out there and doing the workouts. But yeah, there are general recommendations. General term we use is 10% rule. So no more than 10% each week. Mm -hmm. But if you're going 10% up each week, it's still a fair bit of load. So generally I'd say two weeks up, one down a little bit, two weeks up. Another thing that uh, you're looking at at the workouts, so something that I think I've had the benefit of being overseas, seeing a few different training methods, like in Australia, the training methodology is very much 
you know, the Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday workout and then the Sunday long run. So the only issue with that is if you do a hard workout on Tuesday, particularly as you get older, yeah, you might feel all right the next day. It's 48 hours, 72 hours, inflammation's going to come up. So some of the runners, we need to encourage maybe that they do only two, two workouts a week instead of the three. Uh, and even the long run, so in Australia we do it quite slow, a lot of the groups, if you want to do a good solid long run, maybe we need to rest the day before like the Kenyans do or the day after. Uh, so we can target the session. So it's not just overall load, we'll also look at the peaks and highs in a week. Uh, so yeah, def- definitely look at the weekly structure and some athletes that may have to work on a two week structure or a monthly structure. And I've spoke to some elite athletes overseas and they say if they can hit three out of the four workouts they've got scheduled in a fortnight, they're happy. Mm-hmm. So if they're not quite up to it that day, they hold back for one. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't do the easy running, but yeah, definitely with building up the 10% rules agenda one we do, but if people are a bit more vulnerable, we may have to even back that off. And, and then also within that, then you're looking at first, as in your stimulus, then you'd be looking at one, get your volume up. So even the same with the strength work, you'd be doing the more endurance stuff, then you can start to increase the speed, you know, you'd start a little bit of strides and that, then last, you know, your, your volume and intensity and, and also your loading if you're introducing heels and that. So same if we're doing rehab stuff, we will start at the longer. For instance, we'd start an isometric stuff, which is lower risk, then we would go to the concentric shortening before we go to the eccentric lengthening the muscles and then to that really dynamic plyometric stuff. So mm-hmm. it, it needs, it's a, it's quite a logical graded progression, uh, but yeah, we, we can't be anxious to jump in the gun too much. And also we've got to map that out for some athletes that are a bit anxious uh, that they can see that timeline. So it's not like, oh, I've, had, I've been doing exercise for two weeks and not better. Some injuries, it might take three weeks to settle. Uh, unfortunately for a bone injury, depending where it is, you can do all the strengthening work around it. Bone just needs time. Mm. Yeah, okay. That's interesting. You mentioned the mindset side of things before and just managing the, the athletes who are anxious to get back into the work. And uh, I, I know that, I, I don't know if this is an experience that you have as a physio, but one thing I, I tend to notice still and definitely noticed in myself when I was younger was the, the just the more is better approach to training. Like I was, if I was out or having to rest an injury, it was always frustrating because in the back of my mind, I wasn't considering the fact that, as you said, like uh, a week out, you're going to lose 1%. You know, two weeks out, you're barely going to lose it. I just... Uh, it seems to be a bit of an obsessive sport where people are like, all right, if we're not doing it, we're not gaining the advantage of doing it. Mm. Whereas um, what you're saying is sometimes just taking that time away, especially for bones, your only option mm. is is the best is the best bet. But how, how do you go uh, just on average when it comes to someone who comes to see you, do you notice that there's a bit of a trend for athletes just to want to be out there doing it regardless of how they feel? Or once they've got the diagnosis, they're, they're happy to do what's required to improve? Yeah, that's definitely the difference between uh, just your average Joe Blow down the street and the people that are more athletic, okay, who are quite keen and fitness orientated. Then you've got on the other end of the spectrum, which I've seen, you know, like the real elite elite, people say to me, oh, what, why are they better? What do they do? No, they don't train hard, most of them are trainers. They actually, they seem to lift on the race day, but a lot of them, they don't train that much harder. But one thing I've noticed, particularly with spending time when I was overseas with Kenyan athletes, they recover a lot better, they tune out. So for instance, we do LA training, then we're busy the rest of the time. So 
even if we, we can manage to hold the athlete back, they might go wasting energy doing other things. They might, for instance, they've got some a hip injury, for instance, uh, today, iliosoas bursitis or something, they may tighten up in the back, they may be sitting all the time. So it's not just so much what they do as well, it's what they do in the other time. Mm. So that's one thing I notice the Kenyan athletes, they do recover very well. When you say you're having some time off, we're not doing a session, they'll rest. They won't even leave the house half of them. They'll just be content where more the Caucasian athletes, oh, I've got to go and do something, oh, I've got to keep myself occupied. So I think that's probably it. Being content when you are injured, also having other outlets to put your energy into as well. Um, because I think there it is also, I found my own experience, it can be a dangerous, you can cross, yeah, this sounds absurd to some people, but I oh, yeah, we're it's all different if you've got an event coming up in the next two or three weeks, you've got a niggle, you've got to be right for nationals. No doubt. But if it's, you've got, for instance, now it doesn't matter anything if you're a lead athlete till December, there's no qualifying, you get an injury, it's not, there's no, I don't see yourself bursting yourself for overtraining at the moment. It, it wouldn't be logical. Uh, the danger would be, say, if you do all this work non-weight bearing in the pool or whatever, you had a stress fracture, you were in the pool, you started back in the LTG, you could potentially get too aerobically fit for your legs ready for when you're back running because you haven't had that loading through there. So yeah, your heart and lungs might be ready to run 28 minutes for 10Ks, but the calves conditioning, the foot intrinsics, it might only be up to, you know, running 33-minute pace. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it is a tricky one um, that we, we need to work on, uh, and that, that's why I think it is good even for the better athletes, even you look at AFL footballers, that they people have other outlets in life uh, and other things that they can focus on rather than just running because, yeah, there are going to be those periods when you need to back things off, and if your whole world revolves around that bubble, it's unhealthy. But if, even if you get through your career you have very minimal injuries, then you could be set up for disaster when it finishes or whatever. Yeah, there's nothing there. And then we see depression and things like that in as well. So there, it's, it's, it's a wider circle. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point, that, that all eggs in one basket. It's, it's definitely an all-consuming sport. I, I know from when it comes to your training, it, and we'll touch on strength and conditioning and stuff soon, but if you're, if you're doing everything that you feel like you should be doing, I think sometimes it can be a... Uh, an easy thing just to fall into the trap of okay this is all I have in my life and um, yeah I've definitely seen uh, what you're referring to the athletes just sort of lose the plot a bit when they can't do it but um, one thing I wanted to ask you about and you, you touched on lifestyle briefly when you're referring to the Caucasian athlete in comparison to a Kenya athlete is the is the lifestyle that a lot of athletes live and I, I spoke briefly to a, a bloke on the podcast a, a few weeks ago an American guy who does a little bit of coaching and he was just speaking about the sedentary lifestyle that a lot of us live over here whether we've got an office job or whether we've got a um just quite a slow pace moving job where we're sitting down and we're not getting up and about throughout the day is is there any relationship from what you can see with the lifestyle that we're living in that uh, regard and the sort of onset of injury or is um would you say that sort of fits into the category of just allowing you to to recover a little more effectively from being on your feet and running the hard sessions Oh, definitely. Well, it's COVID now, and <laughs> injuries at the moment, people working from home, neck and back pains hit the roof. And I went to even myself trying to get a computer desk set up because I've just been working from my laptop. And they're all sold out. People are working from kitchen tables, they're lying on couches, they're lying on their beds. So ergonomic side of things yeah, is growing, uh, and that, that's contributing to some injuries, mm-hmm. you know, neck and back issues. 
for the runner, you can use it to your benefit. I think it's as a runner, I know there's some good examples and that of runners are doing trades and that, but I think probably if you've got an office job, it could be benefit as in a bit of rest time mm. off your feet. The danger is if you're stiffening up. So generally we recommend get up every 20 or 30 minutes, that lumbar loading and things like that. People don't realise what effect that has on this musculoskeletal system. Uh, so, yeah, they're, they're two and fours and against for that. But, you, yeah, it depends on what, what career. At the end of the day, your passion is going to dictate your career choices and also the availability of work. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, um, I'm interested just to, to, I'm dancing around a little bit here, but I'm interested to pick your brain a, a little bit more. I spoke to John, the podiatrist here briefly about um, plantar pain and plantar fasciitis and um, sort of the, the causes of that. And I know there's, uh, that I type it into Google just to see what people say. And there seems to be a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different opinions on how to treat it, what causes it. Um, and I, I was just interested because I know there's a few people who have reached out from the podcast asking to speak specifically about this. And I thought I would just um, throw, throw it at you while we're here, just because it is so common. Um, is Plantar fasciitis is something that I've, I've experienced training for marathons and things and sort of pushed through, not to a great degree, in terms of the, the, the pain out of 10. It hasn't, hasn't been too unbearable. But I know for some athletes it's a... It's almost comes to a point that they can't run, they can't treat it, they can't just do the work that's required. Mm. Is How do you go uh, with an athlete that's come to you with plantar pain who's just continually trying to rest, trying to run, trying to rest, trying to run, just not having any luck getting back up and about? Mm. Yeah, well, as I said, it's, it's probably one of the most common injuries, and particularly in the, be- the better runners, and you were running quite fast speeds up on your toes, and that's why I suspect you'd be high susceptibility to that. Uh, first of all, diagnosis, which is pretty clear, clear cut. Mm-hmm. Imaging isn't always indicated for plantar fasciitis. When I say fasciitis to the people, population, there's other terms, you may hear policemen's here, you may hear fasciopathy, which more of an invoke term, and now they're just going to more of the umbrella term, plantar heel pain. Uh, with plantar fasciitis, the t- why they went away from the fasciitis to the fasciopathy was the feeling wasn't so much an inflammatory condition, it was more, there was evidence showing it more acting like a tendinopathy, so degeneration of the tendon. Now, it's an area that I've done a fair bit of research. Uh, got, just before John spoke to you, we actually had a meeting about an article we're looking at it doing for more research on plantar heel pain, using that umbrella term, but it's pretty much plantar fasciitis as you refer to it. Uh, and I did a systematic review on that, and with part of the systematic review's findings were there was encouraging evidence for strength training rather than stretching for plantar fasciitis, plantar heel pain. But if you type in Google, every, most of them say still, oh yeah, stretch your plantar out. The issue with that is where it attaches, where most people will get one of the hallmark symptoms is pain at that medial calcaneal tubercle. So just down there, mm-hmm. uh, where it attaches. And your first reaction is, oh, it's really tight through there. Let's stretch it out, pull on that great toe. And you feel it. Now, the issue is with that, every time you do that, it can tug on it and stir it up. So, for instance, one another one of the hallmark symptoms is pain first steps in the morning. So if you're sleeping at night, you feel like that under the blankets, you got to take that step, first step, and ah, it really hurts. So that's, again, pulling on there. So what now the thought is that we move away from that stretching stuff and we put load through the, the fascia itself, strengthen up the intrinsic foot muscles to take pressure off it, rather than stretching it out. Now, 
Technically, if it's a tendon, we don't use we don't rub and massage tendons, but fascia is tough, fibrous, connective tissue, so we usually do loosen it out a bit as well. So we've looked at a few methods about lowering the plantar fascia. Now, getting more aggressive on this, if you're a, uh, if you're an elite runner on that, and it's just not settling, uh, not that we'd like to promote injection of cortisone, but to be honest, the, the evidence is very good for cortisone settling it quite well. Admittedly, you have to do your rehab as well because cortisone is a catabolic steroid. It breaks down muscle tissue, but I think that they've done some studies recently comparing exercise interventions and plantar heel pain and cortisones, and the cortisone does settle it well. If that gets to the point that you have that, you should really be a bit careful with it, but it's not, it's not like which we don't want injecting into a tendon. It is tough. And you might have heard the story about Robert Harvey, the footballer, jumping off a table, trying to... I haven't. Yeah. Well, he apparently, apparently oh. yeah, he had plantar fasciitis that bad. He was trying to create some little tears in it. So sometimes that can create a bit of relief as well. Uh, so not like Achilles, anything around the Achilles, very, very careful, very controlled loading. We definitely wouldn't inject in tendon. We could go into the paratendon. But the plantar fascia is a bit more forgiving. Uh, a lot of people say, oh, you don't get injected in things. But running-wise... It, and people, who, particularly if they're older people who come in, they're just struggling to walk around and they've gone through the rehab. The rehab, inter- the rehab is very promising. The one the intervention we're working on at the moment, we've had a 70% reduction. So in people, 70% of people have actually improved mm-hmm. and some of it was insignificant uh, and there was only very few that actually flares up if they prepared to go through the rehab. But that's six, eight weeks. If you're definitely not improving in that stage, then go ahead potentially go to sports position and get your infection. Yeah. But there are the odd people that come in, read Google, come in, I've got heel pain, I must have plantar fasciitis. No, it could be radicular pain. No, it could be carpal tunnel. So, well, not carpal tunnel in the foot, but yeah. yeah. So you can have some nerve, I mean, it could be nerve entrapment in there. So, yeah, so you've got to look at those things. So with things like cortisone, that's addressing the, the inflammation that might be in there, is it? Well, that's where it's... It's interesting because technically, really, it shouldn't. It's not really inflammatory, we know now, but it seems to respond to it. So it, there is a response to it. Ah, oh, so the actual plantar pain isn't usually... Um, well, that's why we've returned it more to fasciopathy or heel pain rather than inflammatory. So people used to be on anti-inflammatories and that. It's the same, you know, we've returned, say, tendinopathy now rather than tendinitis because mm-hmm. it's more a degenerative condition. Yeah. So... What are your thoughts on um, like just anti-inflammatory tablets and things like that? Obviously, that's a broad question, but um, when it comes to treating certain kinds of inflammation, like a, I know yeah, you sort of mentioned that some people are a little bit funny about the direction they take when it comes to treating this kind of stuff. Is it good? I, I guess the, the question is, I've had like a little bit of a pain in my, my back for a little while, which I'm, I'm quite sure is, is inflammation. And was recommended that I, you know, use some anti-inflammatories to, to treat it. And I was a little bit hesitant just because I was like, oh, I wonder if it's actually like a, uh, is it a movement thing? Is there something else which has triggered it? Is like, I wonder, I wonder what could be the cause of that. Whereas I, I can imagine it's one of those things. I take an anti-inflammatory, or I get a cortisone or whatever, and it actually treats the inflammation, which seems to be the, the follow-on pain. Like, are there any, any blanket rules or any idea rules when it comes to your anti-inflammatory tablets that people can use as a guide like in terms of... Um, Obviously, it's something you don't want to be on forever, but... Yeah, so as a physio, I can't give people direct pharmaceutical yeah. advice and always check with your doctor, get that prescribed by them. General things, though, that I find, 
people are hes- most people are hesitant to take anti-inflammatories, which is a good thing. Yeah. They're hesitant to take medications, uh, but if it is prescribed by the doctor, um, particularly a sports physician, uh, and it is indicated, yes, you are better to hit it with the anti-inflammatories if they feel it's an inflammatory condition and take, particularly if it's a prescription one, hit it hard, rather than these, some people who come in and they've been having, oh, I've been having Voltaren tablets for mm-hmm. three or four months. That's bad. You know, it's not good for your stomach. Yeah. Uh, so that you end up with gastrointestinal issues, some of them long-term. So if... And then same with the cortisone people, oh, I think that's a bit drastic, we don't want that. No, we, we, we want to avoid them things, but if it gets to the point where you've had something six, 12 months, you're seven or eight, inflammatory markers in your body, it's getting you down, you're grumpy all the time, I think the rewards probably outweigh the risks. Now, that's a personal decision. Some people sure. don't like medications, uh, but if it is indicated, now some things it isn't indicated, and we want to be sure on the diagnosis, for instance, if you're sore here, down medial scapular pain, is it actually a medial scapula or is it referral from your neck? Is it somewhere else? Is it your facet joint? So we need to work out that rather than just stick an injection. Sure, like a far more holistic approach to the actual injury. Yeah, and also it can give you a false sense of security. Now people also say, oh yeah, it, it will wear off, it's just a band-aid. Yes and no, sometimes enough to to get to put the fire out that's in there and it won't come back. You do your rehab, your stuff, you're fine. Mm-hmm. But if you just get, you just rely on getting propped up by an injection, which is why it got a bad rap, for instance, the 80s. I think AFL, VFL then, we're getting you know, injections before every game and see, yeah, see like Dermot Burton had 20 surgeries and things like that. So these sort of things, yes, that's not good for your long-term catabolic steroids um, and they're not good for your bone health. Inflammation is part of the normal response. So, yeah, I would definitely, if you're thinking, if you have, it's up to you whether you have some just in your own choice for a couple of days, what's available through your pharmacist, uh, but then I would be getting proper medical diagnosis and advice on that before you take it any longer because it's, it's a dangerous area, can get good responses though. So if it is medically uh, indicated, I would feel assured with that. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really good. Um, you mentioned earlier about the hot topic of strength and conditioning, and it is, it seems to come up in a lot of the conversations that I'm having at the moment, something that I'm really interested in myself. Um, and, and it seems as well that the more people I speak to, the more approaches there seem to be to the way that athletes structure it. Like, uh, I'm, not, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was Gregson who was saying that he'll do his session on a Tuesday and then he would do his strength and conditioning on a Wednesday and it's sort of like a, it's a bit of a hit out on each day whereas a couple of athletes that I've spoken to are doing their, like a quite a hard session on a Tuesday then in the evening they'll go and try and do like a hard workout um, in the gym just to be able to sort of just hit everything on that one day and use the next day's recovery um, is there a when you say it's a little bit of a hot topic at the moment is there uh, is it something that we're over focused on is it something that we're just a little bit misguided on well, you've raised sort of two issues. One's the recovery. Mm-hmm. So the biggest issue with the strength and conditioning is most exercise people being prescribed and that I use it pretty good that I get people come in. Yes, quite often need to help them on their form or their muscle activation or they mightn't be appropriate at that time, but also the timing. So for particularly if we're looking at these, you're referring to elite runners, big loads that we get at the right time. So... Now that depends on the structure and when's the next workout. So if you're doing this workout on the Tuesday, 
and I said you're going to be expecting to be pulling up sore. Uh, depends what you're doing for the strength work, if that's dangerous at that period. For instance, if I know that uh, I'm going to do a workout on a Tuesday and a Friday, I've got a little bit more leeway, so I can think Tuesday I could do my work, or I could do my strength work afterwards, if I'm fresh enough, or I could do it on Wednesday, I'm still going to be recovered from my workout on, mm-hmm. the, th- on the Friday. Thursday may be a little bit close, because I usually say to people, I don't want you hitting your hard workouts on tired legs. Also depends on the... Type of strength work you're doing. If you're doing heavy lifts, yes, we've got to space it out to allow that recovery. If we're doing just an activation neural work, you could do that that morning, you could do it pre-activation. Uh, then we've got to look at strength work where it does get uh, a bit controversial is, uh, is it need to be heavy load? Does it just activation work? Now, that I really think with strength work, there's more than one way to skinny cap, right? And what's appropriate for one athlete? It's not appropriate for all. So, for instance, when we were running, we'd look at, like, the 1,500 guys you'd look up to, like, you've got uh, Menzano, Centrowitz, you've got Willis, you had Weeting, Kiprock, he's a bit sus now. <laughs> but all different body types. Mm-hmm. So are we going to give Menzano the same strength work as Weeting? Do you think he had the same injury issues? Mm-hmm. No. So it d- depends. So Weeting may need to... Weeting hadn't done much mileage in his career. Some of these other guys, you know, Willis had 10, 10 years of collegiate running, running in New Zealand, and then on the circuit. So they're at different points in their career, different injury history. And then also the danger is, if they don't need that strength work as much, do they need more recovery? Or do they need to... Or is it, would that 30 minutes be better getting in another easy jog? So... Just because they're a great athlete doesn't mean they're a high-level strength. Some of the best athletes that come in here are actually the worst at the strength. So, uh, and it's, there's also, is it, it doesn't correlate, which it, it's quite debatable. So I always have debates in our physio meetings here and when I go to conferences and things because the ones that they have all these outcome measures for strength, uh, they'll have a screening test for strength. And had some Olympic athletes in here. They can't pass any of those tests get them out running on the oval, doing strides, they're doing more volume, you know, they're running some from 200 k's a week. They look beautiful as moving along. They've got asymmetries, they need a wall, they can't get zero centimetres. On the other side, we get some people come in, they're great on all the strength tests, get them out running, they look pathetic. So uh, it needs to be specific uh, and there, there are more than one. It's just like some training groups will fit you better than others, like... Not meaning that that's a bad coach. It's just that way that coach mm-hmm. trains. That that training philosophy doesn't. You're not. It's not a great fit. They might be a more speed focused group. They may be more an endurance focused. So, I think we've got to be open to that as therapists. Uh, as I said, went back. The general rehab timeline is similar, but the way that we may treat an athlete may vary. Uh, and yeah, we've got to be open minded. That and I think it's probably one of my benefits of actually travelling um, and being in the US and exposed to some more international runners is, because I know in Australia it's very much just the one way or the highway, yeah. there are a few different ways that we can approach in injuries and that's why I like having someone like John who has a little bit more lateral view of things uh, rather than just there's one way. Obviously when we give the message though to the patient it's got to be clear cut, it can't be, it can't be giving them too many ideas. Uh, so it's got to be quite clear cut precise, definite. It's not just, I'll oh, try this, see how it goes. So we've got to be 
take into account their history and what's specific for them, but it can't be just airy-fairy. It needs to be definite, it needs to be objective, but be aware that people will respond differently to training. They've got different strength backgrounds, so what's appropriate for one athlete mm. mightn't be for others. Same in different points in their career. Uh, for instance, I know from my brother Craig, you know, what, what times he ran, he ran 3.36 when he was 19.20. He couldn't run 3.36 off that lower volume now. He needs to do a bit more work to get to that level. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it, it depends. It, even from... Even for you and myself, I think probably to what the times we were when we were young, if we were to get back putting in that to get to those now, we'd probably have to do a bit more work. Doesn't mean we're not capable of it. I don't think we're ancient yet. But we'd have to probably put in a lot more work. So it depends on the point in the career. And last year we had a seminar with Dan Taff, who's a famous American sprints coach, you know, worked with Don, Donovan Bailey, Ado Bolton, or Dolly Thompson, and actually had him on the platform with John Quinn. And John was sort of playing devil's advocate, sort of pro for the strength work, and was um, surprised because you think he's got all these, you know, beefed up athletes that um, Dan Paff wasn't that big on the strength. He was saying the strength can be a bit of a cop out, and he gave a couple of examples like Obadelli Thompson, I think he said he couldn't even squat a backpack, sort of thing. So, and these guys run nine eights for a hundred. So, in Australia, we think, oh yeah, they're hundred meter, you know, sub ten runners, they must be lifting astronomical weights. Not always the case and even you know you look at Joe game that some of the stuff that you see the clips of what they're doing you step ups and that he's not doing right <laughs> form or anything it's just a little bit of aerobics workout so he's the best in the world so yeah we've got to be it's, it's a wider picture at that yes so as a physio I'll be looking more at what strengths appropriate for settling down their injury mm-hmm. if they're at an injury settled perspective Yes, and we're looking at performance enhancement perspective, then we might be better at looking at someone like Quinny or someone who that's where they're, you know, getting them. How can we get you down from, say, a 50 flat 400 to a 49 or 48 so you've got more kick for your 1500? So that sort of stuff I see is you're moving away from uh, treating injury to performance. But is that performance, are you going to get that performance from doing strength work? Or is it going to? Is it easy to get it by doing some hills or something like that? Sure. So, at the risk of throwing out like a blanket question, which is trying to find a one size fits all, which I know just doesn't necessarily exist, with the with the five areas um, that that you've listed as the most common injuries, are there certain things that if someone who at the start of the podcast heard, oh, okay, I'm actually dealing with that. It's interesting that it's one of the most common injuries. Are there are there certain directions after load management? Um, with their gym, with their strength and conditioning routine that you would encourage them to be doing? Or is it just too impersonal to say? Uh... No, 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 definitely. If we look at that list there, the five there. Uh, and even going back to what John, John would have looked at it from a foot-up approach, being a podiatrist. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a physio, yeah, we'd probably look at more whole body. But, yeah, definitely if you've got these issues, the first two, you, it's we're looking at the loading now with the loading Generally, those first you see some sort of valve is collapsing in, so we'd be wanting to do a lot of hip glute strengthening. So hip stability is a big thing. Yeah. So you're not dropping through the hips when you're running and exerting that force through that. Even the knee, meniscal stuff. Even plantar fasciopathy indirectly because that could be a pronation issue. So we've got valves quite often will pronate collapsing on the foot as well. Uh, so even medial tis- tibial. So a lot of these injuries are more collapsing in medially on the inside. So, and you quite often see that. So you'll notice these runners when they're running, their hips will oscillate up and down. They won't be holding nice and level. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, and at the probably go back to the nineties, everyone was saying, "Oh, you got to do lots of core work for that." Now we're going, and then it was, it was all glute work, which is big on the glute work, you know, keep stability work. But yeah, we're trying to control. We don't want those that lateral movements a little bit. But there are bandwidth. Some some of it is into certain bandwidth is acceptable. So, you know, people say, oh. I know you hear a lot of physios, oh, you've got to get this big triple extension. Yes, that's right. But if you look at it purely, no, there is a little bit. You should have a little bit of movement in there. We do need that little bit of give mm-hmm. to spring off. Yeah. So your original research was in the Achilles tendon. I don't know why that comes to... No, no, it was plantar heel pain. It was always a plantar heel pain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a little bit less research. Achilles tendons, tendinopathy is very big research in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. But the issue with these research and why I sometimes as a physio play a bit devil's advocate to some of these is, uh, particularly the patient base we've got here are the elite runners. This research is looking at people around 40, 60 k's a week, mm-hmm. five, six minute k's. It's pretty far removed from when we've got the guys coming in running 28 minutes for 10k and you know running 13 20s when I want to get down to 13 10 for 5 k's. Uh, and they run 160 k's a week. So what works for a 40, 60 k plotter mightn't work for them as well. So sometimes we do need to change things a little yeah. bit in that regard. We need to be a bit more aggressive. Yeah, sure. So are the, most of the people that are coming in here to get treated by you, are they, like what level are they running at? Because I, I've sat in the waiting room here, you know, and enough times to be able to see some really high quality athletes walking through and, um, and, and I'm definitely not at that level anymore, but still come here to get sorted out from time to time. But is there, uh, if you had to like throw a blanket over a group of people who are most often in here, is it is it people who are uh, elite or is it people who are on the way up just trying to improve or is it just a weird combination? Oh, of it depends, depends what the practitioner is. Do they have an interest on a particular side of things? So we've got a variety of practitioners. You know, there's 25 on the books, oh. um, but they're not in here at all the same time. Uh, so, for instance, you know, Karen Holtz is the sports physician. Yeah, she's got a big basis in female athletes overuse endurance sports also respiratory injuries mm-hmm. so as in terms of athletic population that they'll be orientated that way uh, mine my passion probably that junior developing athletes and then other middle distance runners so that's anyway you can still get your standard cause of video physio patients uh, but yeah my caseload tends to be orientated around them so people are saying oh you must be getting all these joggers in I probably don't see as many of them. I see to see high-level runners or the junior athletes, uh, the recreational athletes, maybe going to another practitioner sort of thing. So I think it's, it's yeah, it's, it's like the coaches and that. It's what fits you best. So, for instance, if you're a high jumper, you're not going to go to a distance coach. So Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm interested in picking your brain a little bit, and I know we don't have a, a whole heap of uh, high-altitude training areas in Australia <laughs> apart from sort of... Falls Creek. I know Victoria, okay. I don't know what the highest place, Mount Kosciuszko. There's not much running going on up there from what I can tell. Um, the, the the altitude side of things is something that I'm really interested in because I know a lot of athletes are obviously quite interested in, um, especially here in Melbourne, going up to Falls Creek each year and uh, getting away, doing some really intense training. But I, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about the benefits of that, about the um, any misconceptions that athletes might have or about the role that it can play in improving performance. Yeah, so my background, I suppose, in altitude physiology is because I spent nearly three years at Adams State College and a university in Colorado, uh, and that's at 
2,300 metres, so 7,544 feet. So we were higher than um, even Kosciuszko, I think, which is 2,000 something. Yeah. Uh, so the benefits of that I learned a bit about, you know, how, how to train altitude physiology. The background of that place was that it was actually one of the training bases for the Mexico City Olympics was the same height as Mexico City. So the US um, Olympic Committee used it. They actually ran the Olympic trials there for the marathon uh, and a lot of the first research in altitude training. So it's only sort of since the late 60s and a famous instance with Ron Clark and then people started going up to Falls Creek and thinking, oh, yeah, this altitude stuff does help. Uh, everyone says, oh, go to altitude, I can't breathe, there's less oxygen in the air. Well, there's not less oxygen, there's less partial pressure, so you don't have pressure, so you absorb it. What's so it called? Less... Less partial pressure in yeah. the air. Okay, so you don't... So, for instance, there's less air resistance, so you can actually sprint faster. So that's why you went to, for instance, Mexico City, and you see all the 100 metres, up to 400 metres, even 800 metres, Australian record was broken, because uh, you can sprint faster, less air resistance, mm -hmm. but you just can't absorb that oxygen. Uh, so... That's one of the main things, one issue in the oxygen intake there. Um, and as a result, your body compensates and increases your red blood cell count. And then after a while, you go back down to sea level, you're going to have, you could have increased performance, providing you're nutritionally supplementing appropriately, keeping up. So as in terms of athletic performances, uh, Australians, yes, they go to Falls Creek, which is pretty symptomatic. I've got a little picture here, uh, 1,600 metres. Uh, so, for instance, we're running a mile there. Probably, if we were racing our best time from 1,500, you know, 40, 45, 47, or 48, okay, we're probably only going to run 353 or 4 if there was a track up there yeah. at, uh, what, for 1,500 or a little bit le less because that's, um, that's a mile conversion. Uh, but if you were somewhere like... Where I was at, I'm state, you know, around the two, which is equivalent to the Rift Valley, you'd be, for a mile, you're going to be 10, 13 seconds slower for Sorry. a sea level. So it is, a, it is a lot harder to run at these altitudes. Uh, and, but you can see that Falls Creek, it's only minimal, so it is quite sympathetic. But when you get up to them higher, the, the difficulty will be exponential. Mm. So the issue for that is when the running runners alter in their training. And a lot of runners, unfortunately, don't. So they go, for instance, they go to Falls Creek, which it doesn't matter as much because uh, it's only minimal, uh, but they'll start doing their K reps and trying to run what they were doing down here on the team. Uh, same recovery. Maybe they should be content to run, you know, three few seconds out, a little bit longer recovery, particularly on the easy runs as well. Don't run them as hard. That's crucial once you get up to these higher altitudes, otherwise you won't recover and then you'll be into overtraining territory. So if you want to do the faster reps, what you may have to do instead of, for instance, uh, if you were going to do a mile rep or something, you may be doing a 1500 rep. Uh, the, the, for instance, in that, when you get up to that faster work, what we were doing, for instance, you know, for the 800s and that, what you might be doing reps at 53 or four, you might only be doing off a few minutes down in Melbourne, you may even take seven or eight minutes at that altitude. So. Recovery is very important and your body, your body needs time to adapt to that. So a lot of people, yeah, train themselves in the ground at altitude and they come back feeling flat and worse. Uh, and also we need time. So most of the people that will go up Falls Creek, 
they'll spend two or three weeks up there. Life of red blood, so, you know, looking six, six, six weeks, you need to be up there for a significant period of time to get that adaption. Mm-hmm. So, but on the other side of things, training cramps are great, as in time away, focus on your running, do all the recovery things, running with other people. So they, quite often, those benefits will be more than the altitude itself would have provided. Yeah, but the idea of going up there as a football club and hoping to get a, a benefit in four days or two days or whatever, it's no, not going to no, happen. No, it might be not, good for the, the camaraderie, yeah. but it's not going to be great no, for the no, actual no, body. No. So, yeah, you, you need to spend some significant time up there. Uh, but then if you're a middle-distance runner, for instance, you want to crack some really fast 815 times, you may be limited a little bit on how much real fast work you can do it there or hitting quality uh, because you're going to be much slower. So it's a, it's a fine line with that. I wonder, what, do you know what height this is putting you under the pump here? Do you know what height the Monaco Athletics track is set at? Because it's inter- I wonder if there's a comparison, like you mentioned Mexico and how from... Oh, I think it's pretty much at sea level. It's minimal. It's only a few hundred. It is, yeah, yeah okay. It's pretty much on the sea and the ocean. I haven't been there. Wish I had. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It looks beautiful. It's, so, uh, I'm just, uh, I think I'm deceived because it's got the mountains in the background, doesn't it? So I thought it might have been up a little bit. But mm-hmm. I thought, is there... So from 100, say from sea level to um, that height of Mexico, like that... You said the 800 meter world record was broken, the Australian record was broken there. Mm. A lot of fast times are run there. I'm, I'm just wondering whether like a thousand meters is enough for. Actually, no, my theory doesn't work. I'm just doing the maths in my head and forget that. I'm going to have to be. So, the well, well, at a, th- a thousand, you would only be uh, just off memory. Were well, they just NCA conversions? Um, you yeah. don't get them for anything else because they've just got cities at altitude. Uh, that one. On the left, I think it's, uh, that's Flagstaff's altitude. So. If we go by and say conversion, I don't think I've, they got up you know, down to 1,000 metres, I don't know what that is in feet, mm-hmm. uh, which is about two or three seconds. But ideally for this response, you have to be really over 2,000 metres, so, or high, with that one on the top right, St. Bricks, 1856, so. Yeah. Yeah, and you look at the big cities in America that you think of an altitude, uh, like for instance Denver, I think that's about a mile high, Albuquerque oh, yeah. is about 1,600 as well. Yeah. It was interesting. I don't know if you saw the virtual race between Jakob Ingebrigtsen and the Kenyan team the other day. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure where the Ingebrigtsen were racing, but it was it was really interesting just to watch the first two laps. I think they went through pretty much the same pace for the first two laps of a 2K virtual race that they were doing. And then the team that were in, I'm pretty sure, were in Kenya, just those last three laps, they really started gasping. You could see like a physical representation of what you're speaking about now, like the, the impact of altitude, I think they slowed down to like a 504. So it's anything that once you get above that 800 metre distance, it starts yeah, to be Yeah, 800 sort of the borderline, around that sure. two, two minutes when you go to anaerobic to aerobic. Uh, and then for that race, yeah, that was massively disadvantaged. <laughs> yeah. And I think the track will probably be better surface than what they had in Oslo. But uh, the Kenyans, it wouldn't make as diff- much of a difference to them. So, for instance, you said the Kenyan yeah. trials and that in Nairobi and that, which isn't the Rift Valley height, they'll still crack out of 335 or 6 or so, whereas the sea level would go there to 342 or 3 is probably about the best they could pull yeah. out. So it doesn't, because they've grown up as they, they've, got, they've, they've got more of a complete adaption to the altitude. Mm-hmm. When you speak about adaption at altitude, like how often... Do you, like, if you were giving advice to someone that you were helping out and they were saying, okay, like, I want to try and incorporate altitude training into my annual training, 
program. Is there is there a point of no return where okay, so you've spent six weeks up there? Do you benefit just as much from six weeks as you would from twelve weeks? Or the longer you can spend up there, the like obviously the Kenyan example is like the that mass extension of that where they they live there, they train there. It's... Yeah, well, they're born there. They had their their growing developmental years. Yeah. Uh, so. I think there probably be a point of diminishing returns. Sure. It's just like mileage. You know, Lydia used to say around, you know, the 100 miles a week, don't need to do much more diminishing, but you need to get that 100 miles. So there'll be a point of diminishing returns. So yes, it would be better to spend a little bit longer, but after six, eight weeks, I think that's plenty. Mm. As repeat bouts, you probably only need three or four weeks. So Three or four weeks at a time. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need as long. Your body accustoms quicker. Mm. I'm trying to think because a lot of the uh, a lot of the Aussie guys they'll go up there just to the Falls Creek, and it could just be the element of that camaraderie that happens with the training. But they seem to like Stuart McSwain. I'm not 100 percent sure. Speaking about this in a podcast I did this morning, I wasn't 100 percent sure that he came down from Falls Creek when he ran the Australian record. But there definitely seems to be a nice turnaround between the athletes who time that um, return back down to sea level and the, some of the times that they run over here. Is it? Is there like a, a fairly direct comparison between the um, the top athletes and the level of altitude that they live at? Like, I don't know what Alga Rouge, I don't yeah, know what like Morocco and stuff. It's getting pretty high in physiology as in getting that to the fine-tuning it to the max and then you get into points like when you fly, you add that as a day's altitude, for instance, uh, the timing. So if you race within the first 24 hours, there's, there's going to things like that you should wait till like five or six days. So shouldn't run in that two to three day period. So there's varying evidence for that. Yeah, so it can can get quite an art in that. Uh, but most athletes don't have the luxury of all that, and it's it's the, the flights will often be paid by race promoters and meets yeah. and things like that. But if you've got an endless finances, you can you can fine tune that to the nth degree. Yes, you certainly look at all that stuff, uh, and even the two three week. Three weeks, two, three weekers on the repeat bouts. Yeah, they're probably getting a little bit of stimulus from it as well. Mm-hmm. Are there many? Like we're, pu- we're starting to push an hour, so I'm not going to hold you all afternoon. But I'm, I'm just interested to, to sneak a couple, in, a couple more in while I got you. Um, are there any just big misconceptions or big frustrations that you continually see where you're like, I just, I wish I could get this message out to people that that is just not the way that you do it. I'm just curious to hear from a like a practitioner's point of view what people are just doing wrong, which is just so easy to avoid. We'll probably go, I might be stealing John's thunder, he might have said it about the footwear is probably the most expensive shoe, not the best shoe. Yeah, yeah, yeah we actually did speak about yeah, this briefly. Yeah, but. so yeah, that's what he would have said. And then first, people have an injury, the first thing, oh, I need new shoes. Mm. It's only a smaller part of the equation. So that's probably the first thing. The second thing would be the load management side yes. things. For instance, oh, I'm doing my exercises all the time, why am I getting better? So you get two sorts of patients, you get the ones who do. I mean, you've got the middle group, the good ones, but then you've got the ones who do the exercises way too much, mm-hmm. more than prescribed, and then don't do them enough. Yeah, like the exercises that you're giving them yeah, to yeah, treat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, for instance, they'll come in, oh, I've been doing my exercise all the time. I said, when have you been doing I've been doing them at 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock. And I said, yeah, you can do them twice a day, these ones, but leave the middle of the day at least six hours in between to recover. You're just stirring it up, stirring it up, stirring it up. You do need that downtime in between. Or they do all their rehab really great, but yeah, as I've alluded to, doing the wrong thing in the middle of the day. So, for instance, they've got lumbar radiculopathy referred pain from the back. They do their exercise or rehab. They may go and do some hydro in the pool, but then they'll sit for eight hours in the middle of the day. 
pre-inflamed, they're just undone all the mm. work. Or they, or they, they've got you've got them really good, and I'll we'll, we'll drive up to Falls Creek or something, and they sit there and even make a stop. So probably, probably yeah, following directions, and then yeah, and coming either the foot the footwear is always a big thing for runners. Oh, I bought these shoes; these are the best ones. Oh, well, maybe not, and they're not going to cure all yet injuries yeah and, yeah. and, and then then people being impatient yeah sure that's a real common one isn't mm. people just wishing that it wasn't six weeks it was one week that they could take to get back into the running but the, then also with impatience is uh say if you've got an injury and then oh i just had to go for one more run well you, your rehab's gonna have to start again you know we're told, we're told you've got to rest but it's, it starts from now it's not from two weeks ago then you had another run and you had another run so you stirred it up again mm. yeah gee um, man, we've covered some ground. Is there anything else you wanted to, to talk about that I've completely skipped over? I feel like we've taken some interesting turns and directions, but um, I'm, man, there's a, a million things I could ask you, but I, I don't want to take up all, I've, all the afternoon. No, feel free to fire away at anything else. Uh, I can't think of anything too much off, off the top of my head, but yeah, running, running's definitely a big passion of mine, but um, more so, I suppose it's a big passion because it can relate to so many things. Uh, Particularly sports that I really enjoy, as in football, cricket, and that. Mm-hmm. Well, cricket's not so much, but yeah, there is a running element, and I always like to think of the origin of all sports. And I think the COVID's probably put it into perspective. You know, everyone can't do everything else, uh, but you can still go out and go for a run. So yeah. I think that's really fortunate to be able to enjoy a sport and be involved with that. Yeah. No. I'll, let me just. I'll, I'll throw one more. Mm-hmm. One more actually, and then I'll leave you alone. Is. Uh, um, just from a, a, I guess, more of a holistic perspective of running performance, you've got your running training, um, you've got your, your strength and conditioning training, which is relevant or specifically designed for you and your body type. Um, what other elements would you recommend athletes who are just trying to improve focus on in order to get that that performance? Like things like, is, would you recommend yoga and flexibility or um, are there other things that people might just not have thought of that could be of a big advantage to their running performance? Well, yeah, most people say, oh yeah, I've got to do yoga, I've got to do flexibility. Uh, if we look at the research, the evidence isn't that great for it, so I don't tend to push it as much. Mm-hmm. More keeping loose, for instance, you're, you're rolling. Massage is always beneficial to a lot of athletes, uh, and depending on their training load, that may become more regular. So I'd usually say that that's it. Generally, if someone's a little bit injury prone, we, we've done their rehab, they're, they're all good, they're going back and training well. Uh, I would say the just general tightness, yes, that they see one of the massage therapists here, you know, routinely every mm-hmm. few weeks for a bit of maintenance. Uh, if you're injured or you've got a niggle, yes, come to me, I'll yeah. check it out, get a diagnosis. But if you just, just general tightness and that, yes, we should keep on top of that. The issue is with these injuries, we went back, for instance, iliotibial being plantar fascia, quite a lot of them accumulate because of tightness, particularly Achilles. You've got these tight calves chronically tugging on that Achilles tendon, and then before long that tendon becomes irritated. Also, a tight muscle can often be a weak one because it's working overtime to compensate. So having massage can make you aware of your body as well. So that's something I try and encourage people to do. But your first call, that can be expensive, utilising you know, self-massage uh, modalities, you know, get on your foam rollers, your spiky balls. And particularly if someone comes in the first time, they've never done all that stuff. I'll say, well, at least start on that 
um, because anywhere I touch you, you're going to be sore and tight at the yeah. moment for a lot of people. Then work on that for a while, and then when you come back, yeah, there might be one spot here that we, you'll know where you are tight. You'll know where we will be able to identify. But if we just haven't done any of that stuff, maintenance, mm-hmm. yes, it's certainly that. That's a massage. Uh, then you can do some stretching. But if you just try and stretch out really tight muscles, you're just going to pull on the attachments and then yeah, scheduling. As I said, it comes back to that load management, scheduling your recovery days, and then yeah. we, you can get to the other areas of sport sciences and that nutrition, things like that, eh? hydrating and that, which I think John's gone through on his talk as well. Yeah, uh, awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. That was, uh, that was good to sit down and have a chat with you. And I'm pretty keen to get you on it again in the future if, you, if you're keen. So if, uh, if you're keen, we'll have to chase it up and, and do a follow-up around in the next couple of months. Yeah, no worries. Be happy to. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks, Dean.